Good morning. Hey. <laughs> Not used to punching my hip when I walk up to speak. But I don't, uh, I don't trust people with these things right here. I know you're recording all the time, so it's staying muted until I'm ready to be heard. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to belabor any time introducing myself because that was a ridiculous introduction, but I love you. Thank you for that. Um, I, uh, I really do love this church. Uh, I have been here a long time. David, man, awesome getting to know you. Look forward to spending a lot of time together in the future. This is an awesome gift you have in having him here. Um, David Rainer, if you don't know who I'm talking about. Um, got a lot of Davids running around. Met another David a minute ago. It's a good name. Um, but David King, I love you. I really do. Uh, I've told, and and there are people in the room that can testify to this, that, uh, my heart is with you as a pastor. I think you guys have, and I mean, what does my little opinion matter? But I think you guys have probably one of the best pastors in the country, certainly in this city. Yeah. I mean, I'm there. I listen to him regularly, and uh, even though I'm on staff at Brainerd, we, as he said, we've meet, met a few times. He's helped me through a lot in my life, um, and one of the things I love about him is he's always taking the time to sit down and listen, and bro, you're one of the most humble people I know, and, and, I, and I don't think I can come up with a better compliment than that, especially among pastors. You are awesome. All right, enough of that. Let's talk about the word. Um, he mentioned Phoenix, and one of my reasons and hearts for going to Phoenix is because among those many stats that are out there, one of them is that it's the fifth least Bible-minded city. So among cities that are Bible-minded, of course, you're probably not surprised Chattanooga's number one. That's not a bad thing. We want to be Bible-minded. But Phoenix is number five in least Bible-minded, so they are way far away from the word. I love the word. So God has put that heart and this together for that place. Um, But I want to tell you today why Molly and I are going there. And it's not because, despite all of these things, it's not because of the need. Um, It's a different reason. And I I want to show you where, where that comes from. Because the truth is there's need here. Even though this may be the number one most Bible-minded city, spend some time in downtown or spend some time among some gangs or in some prisons, and you'll see there's need everywhere. Let me ask you this. If you could ask Jesus any one question, like if you had the shot, it's time, you're going to get to ask him one question, what would you ask him? Or better yet, what do you imagine that like moment looking like? What do you think it would look like? Do you picture him standing there? Do you picture him sitting on a throne? Do you picture him sitting beside you? Do you picture yourself walking beside him in that moment when you get to ask him your one question? What if, like he so commonly did with his first disciples, instead of asking, answering your question, he asked you a question? That hasn't been so frustrating, you know? What if he asked you a question? What if he turned around to you like he did his first disciples and said, why are you following me? What do you want? That's what he said. You can look it up. What if he said, can you drink this cup? He asked his disciples that too. What does that even mean? Um, Today I want to show you guys something that changed everything for me. Changed my whole life. Changed the way I look at the word entirely. It changed everything for me. 
I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. I grew up in church. It was every bit a part of my life, day in and day out. That did not prevent me from nearly uh, 12, 13 years of drug addiction, drug trafficking, and jail. But I can tell you right now, only one person saved me from that, and that is Jesus the Messiah. And only one thing was required, that David die. And I have only one thing that I do now, and that's keep David on a cross. So today I want to show you, if you're coming to see Jesus, if you came here today, you come to see Jesus. If you're coming to see Jesus, you're coming to a cross. First, you're coming to his cross for your sin. But then you're coming to your cross for his glory. Let me take you to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to work through the word at. And uh, let me give you a quick context. The end of days for Jesus, so to speak. He's coming to the end of his time. The setting is in Jerusalem. It is Passover time, which if you know anything about Passover, that is the biggest event in Jewish life. And I know you do because your pastor loves the Old Testament. And another thing I love about him, so do I. Uh, but Passover is the thing. Even today among Jews, Passover is it. It is the biggest of all festivals. It's the chief festival. And it wasn't just a random thing that Jesus showed up at Passover time. This was a time when all of the Jews would come together to commemorate what God had done in Egypt when he powerfully delivered them from Pharaoh through all of those uh, displays of authority and power, the plagues, all of those things, and delivered them. And their deliverance came by the father of the household putting blood over the door to cover those who were in his household, trusting God that death would pass over them when they saw that blood. And for 1,300 or so years at the time of Jesus, they have been continuously reenacting this, which was told God told them to do it. There was a reason he told them to do it. Reenacting this and reenacting this and remembering this. And for about 1,300 or so years, for about eight or so centuries, they've been doing it in one place, and that was at the temple. Had to be at the temple. You couldn't just do it anywhere you wanted to. You had to come to the temple. You had to do that. Devout Jews from all over the place, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, who had aligned themselves with the Jewish faith, would all come to the temple, and they would all come there with their lambs. So you can imagine so many people at this temple in Jerusalem, so many lambs there at this place. And Jesus himself now is coming there to this same temple and... It's not random. It's Passover time. And what's crazy is, by this point in time, he's made a lot of enemies. So a lot of people that are looking to see him killed. I told you chapter 12. Back up to chapter 11. Let me just show you one quick verse. His disciples even think they're going to die for this. Look at chapter uh, 11 of John, verse 7. It says, then after this, he said to his disciples, well, let's go to Judea again. Talking about back down to the uh, temple. Back down to Jerusalem. And verse 8 says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Verse 16 says, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let's also go that we may die with him. Very sarcastic in a sense. But fully anticipating death. But what happens when they get to Jerusalem? He's riding in on a donkey, and there's... 
you know, they're waving palm branches, we say, and they're all praising him and they're calling him king and fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9, verse 9, that their king will come in on a donkey and they're all just celebrating. And I imagine the disciples are going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought we were going to die here. This is awesome. This is the moment. Like, like, had to be so proud. They're walking in with their Messiah. Who, yeah, he's your Messiah too. But their Messiah, you know. And all the people of Jerusalem are praising them. And I bet they're coming in just proud as they can be right about then. Yep, we chose wisely, you know. And as they enter the city and they come in, it had to be an awesome moment. Look at chapter 12 and let's go in here. Look at verse 17. I'm sure the disciples are just stoked. The crowd that had been with him, I'm in John 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. There are groups here in the city that are continuing to say, you're not going to believe it. This man raised a man from the dead. Verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet with him was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. So all these crowds are gathering around him because they'd heard he'd literally raised the dead. And he had. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, these are the religious folks, religious leaders there, the law in a sense. You see you're gaining nothing. Look, guys, we're getting nowhere. He says, look, the world has gone after him. That's almost a prophetic statement and they don't even know it. All nations are now seeking him. There's people at this temple that are not just Jews. They're people who unite themselves to the Jewish faith and they come there as well from, from anything, Gentiles, from any other uh, creed or race. And, and he's saying, everybody, everybody now, the whole world is following this guy. The Jesus hype is off the chain. I mean, it, noise is going on. People, The hype is built. And even the religious leaders can't stop it now. I'm betting the disciples are on top of the world. The moment has finally reached its peak. We've had to fight through all this trouble, but now we're in Jerusalem with the king. The religious leaders can't stop it. We're on top of the world. It's at the highest moment. And that's not untrue, but that peak is not what anyone is expecting. Look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That just, it could literally be Greeks, but it's common to use that term for Gentiles. So it doesn't have to be Greek descent, but it might have been. Either way, these would have been God-fearers, people who were Gentile by nature, but had aligned themselves with the Jewish faith because they're at Passover and they're at the temple. But. They're looking for Jesus. You know, can this be the Messiah? Can this be the Messiah? Verse 21, so they, they came to Philip, which is a Jew with a Greek name, so that makes sense, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, they couldn't have probably gotten to where Jesus was if they were Gentiles. There's only so far into the temple a Gentile could come. So they would have approached Philip who would have been able to go on farther in to where perhaps Jesus would have been as a Jew, and not just a Jew, but a rabbi, so or recognized as a rabbi. So he would have had uh, some, there would have been some separation. So they come to Philip and they say, hey, can you go in and find Jesus for us? Verse 22, Philip went, told Andrew, the only other disciple with a Greek name, but he too was a Jew, and uh, he was the brother of Peter. And Andrew and Philip went and they told Jesus. This almost reminds me of how it all started, if you remember. Um, Jesus is walking along and John, uh, 
the baptizer tells a couple of his disciples to go follow Jesus, one of those that begins to follow him is Andrew. And Andrew goes and he finds Peter and he tells Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. And then right in that moment is when Jesus calls Philip. It's almost the same kind of thing. So truly the the whole world now has gone after Jesus. And here's these proud disciples. You know, Jesus is being praised. Now the Gentiles have come to see him. Oh, we want to see the Messiah. No problem. Glad to hear it. Give me about 10 minutes. We'll set up a meeting. Let me run, see what his schedule looks like right fast. I get him back out here. Let him arrange a meeting for you. We got to be careful sometimes. We do that. And I'm speaking as David, not at you. Because I grew up in this community too. I'm on staff at Brainerd. But we have to be careful that we don't look at our Jesus and our building. This is our place. You want to see Jesus? Awesome. Let me arrange a meeting for you. Come on over. Come to the door. I'll meet you at the door and I'll walk you in so you can see Jesus when Brother David gets up and preaches about him. You know, or, or we can arrange a meeting like we, like we keep him locked away in our building. Do you, do you feel like you have the keys to Jesus? Sometimes I think that way. That's dangerous thinking. The truth is, he should have your keys. The truth is, he, he, you should be his. He's not, he's, he is yours, but he's not yours to lock away and give away and say, oh yeah, come on, I'll, I'll be happy to set up a meeting. These men, they came to see Jesus along with the crowds, but as I said, if they're coming to see Jesus, they're coming to a cross. I mentioned first, it's his cross for your sin. That's where it all starts. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them. This is funny. He never even directly addresses the Gentiles' request in the first place. He answers uh, the disciples that came. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus had constantly been saying his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. All of a sudden now, his hour has come. This is it. If there were fireworks, they're going off right now. You know what I mean? The disciples have got to be on top of the world at this one. The time of my reign has come. The time for the Messiah to be king has come. The time to establish the kingdom and sit on the throne in Jerusalem has come. The time for all nations to come kneel and call me Lord has come. And the disciples are probably out of their mind. He said he was going to be glorified. Funny term. Glory comes from the Father, and the Father places it on the Son. I'm sure the disciples are loaded on that one, too. They're going to get to see the Father glorify the Son right there, whatever that's going to look like. Is he going to shine? Is he going to glow? I don't know, but they're going to get to see this magic moment. And again, the whole world is there. It's time. But what's about to happen? What's going to happen? He's going to die. Look at verse 24. Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 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 it remains alone. But if it dies, 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 it bears much fruit. 
I'm sure they were like, that's prophetic, Jesus, so let's get onto this throne thing, you know? What's he talking about? He's saying he's going to, he's talking about dying all of a sudden. He's talking about the cross that he's fixing to face. What's going to come from the Father that's going to be placed on the Son? This glory. What's going to come from the Father that's going to be placed on the Son? I'll tell you what, your sin and mine. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's going to get placed on him. Jesus said, If it's possible, take this cup from me. That's not just talking about a burden. David can tell you in the Old Testament, the term cup was always associated with the wrath of God being poured out. What he's saying is, take the wrath. If there's any way that your wrath be not poured out on me, that's what's going to be placed on him. Sin. The wrath of God. For, for us. How in the world is that going to glorify him? The word glorified there, it's a tricky term, but basically it means to esteem one's character, to, 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 to look into the character of somebody and to raise it up, to put it on stage that people could see what they can't normally see. The inside, the character of somebody. One commentary said it like this, Jesus reversed expectation and he used the term glorified almost ironically. His hour of humiliation was going to be his great exaltation. In his suffering and death, he was to be glorified. When God glorifies his name, he makes his awesome power manifest by revealing a portion of his greatness to humanity that was perhaps unseen or unexpected. That's a good way to look at it. Here's what this cross is going to do. How does it glorify him? I'll tell you one big way, dethrone Satan and death. Absolutely dethroned Satan and death. I'll give you some verses. Write them down. You don't have to turn to them. Just make a note. First John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 says through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Hebrews 12, 2 For the joy that was set before him, you probably know this one, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of God in awesome power, enthroned. Probably know this one, Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even what? Death on a cross, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. And where? Under the earth. Everything, all things will bow and call him Lord to the glory of God the Father. His cross is for our sin. And remember, it's Passover. It's Passover. The Father has brought his lamb. Probably know Isaiah 53. If you ever want to memorize a chapter of the Bible in Dave's opinion, that's the one. That's Dave's opinion. That's the gospel to me. That's the best picture of the gospel in all of the Bible. And yes, it's in the Old Testament. Yes, it's in the Old Testament. You probably know some of it. In verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. 
Surely he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is 800 years before Jesus showed up. But, we were, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. This is all coming to happen. He says, all, the, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone, we've turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Like a sheep that before his shears is silent. A lamb that is led to the slaughter, Isaiah goes on to say. This is the picture of the very moment that we're reading about in John chapter 12. The Father has brought the Lamb to the Passover that they've been celebrating on and on. A couple more. John 1.29. John the baptizer said, Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Revelation 12.11, which I'll come back to in a minute, says they conquered him or they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Lamb. And the word of their testimony, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The whole picture was of him. God, the father, would apply the blood of the lamb, his son, over the door, our hearts, over the door, over our hearts, to cover all those who are in the father's household. And as we remain in his household by faith, we are trusting in him that the blood over the door of our hearts, that Jesus' blood over the door of our hearts, applied by the Father, causes death to pass over us. That is what's being accomplished in this moment. Disciples don't see this. For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody knows that verse, especially in this city. Please never make it simple. Such an epic verse. It's the gospel. And I'm going to tell you something right now. If you haven't come to his cross, that's where you have to start. You have to come to his cross first. You have to begin there. You have to realize that it's his sacrifice that's made it possible. You have to realize that apart from him, you have no hope. Apart from him, you have your sin. And yet you got sin. We all do. You have sin. The wages of sin is death. Apart from his blood applied to your life, death is all you have. It doesn't have to be that way. Confess it to him. Call out to him and say, Jesus, you've got to wait for later on to do this. Do it right now. Just say, Jesus, I, I confess it, man. I am a sinner. I need your blood to cover my heart. Ask the Father, Lord God, cover my heart with the blood of your Son. I repent. Telling you, when you do that, you are in the household. You are now in the house of God. You are part of the family of God. And you're in a good place to learn what that means, I promise you. But, let me say this. If you are a believer in here and you're coming to see Jesus, like you probably do if you're real faithful, at least once a week, maybe twice a week. I don't know how many times the doors are open, but you come a pretty good bit. If you are a believer and you are coming to see Jesus, you are also... Coming to a cross. Your cross. For his glory. Look at verse 24 again. He, 
He builds off of that, and he talks about how unless a grain of wheat goes in the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then he transfers the same thought to his followers, and he says in verse 25, whoever, anybody, whoever loves his life loses it. Anybody, I don't care if you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that sounds crazy, but hold on. He says, if anyone, anybody at all serves me, he must, what does must mean? He must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Where am I am, my servant will be also. I always grew up seeing this totally different. And when I saw it correctly, it destroyed me. Where is Jesus when he's saying this? Where is he going? To a cross. To a cross. He's not saying, hey, I'm going into East Lake downtown to work with gangs. Follow me. He's not even saying, hey, I'm going to Phoenix, Arizona to plant a church. Follow me. He's saying, hey, I'm going to a cross. Follow me. I think it's funny he didn't outright say it that way. But if he outright said it that way, how many people you think would have bolted? If anyone wants to follow me, he must come where I'm coming. He must come to a cross. He used the word hate here. That's pretty rough. Hate your life. Hate is not an independent word here. It it is in connection to love, hate and love. And that's a common Hebraic idiom to, to, to oppose them from each other. It doesn't mean that you outright hate. What it means is in comparison to the, to the love that's there, it might appear that you hate. I give you an example. You don't have to turn to it, but in Luke 14, you're probably familiar with this. In Luke 14, verse 25, crowd, great crowds are following Jesus, which is another moment that you would have thought would have been a, a pinnacle. But it says, Jesus turns to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, not hard work that you have to bear. A cross, an instrument, an instrument of torture and death. Is he saying you must hate your family? Why would he say hate your family? You're supposed to love your family. Certainly your wife. What he's saying is in comparison to your love for him, it might look like you hate them. I'll give you a perfect example, and I'm not going to use a name. Met uh, Molly and I have been to West Africa to an Islamic Republic three times, one of those times smuggling Bibles. And during one of those trips, we met a man who had been searching for nine years for who Jesus or for who God was. Back and forth between Allah and all these other faiths, which is completely criminal to do, but he'd been doing it secretly. And no matter what happened, he kept coming back to the Bible and he kept coming back to Jesus. And I don't have time to go through the whole story, but we just happened to be there and I just happened to be talking to him when the Holy Spirit finally broke the man. And he said, I'm ready to pray and give my life to Jesus. I didn't push that. I didn't because the whole conversation was illegal. He just brought it up. I was just there. But the man gave his life to Jesus in the most amazing prayer I've ever heard, ever. And I didn't coach him a word. He just said it straight out in Arabic and was translated. A year later, we went back and he invited us to go meet his family. 
And he wanted us to come have dinner with them and pray for our food in front of them and have it translated from English into Arabic. His family, not only not believers, they're Islamic. It's an Islamic republic. We're in a territory that is highly, highly, highly infested with ISIS. And this is a few years ago. We were really scared. But I'm sitting here thinking, this man, he, he he could get his parents killed for this. Praying in their home like this, he could, it's not just his life, he could get his parents killed for it because they're condoning it even though they don't believe it. Must look like he hates his parents to the people in this country if they know about it. He doesn't hate them, he loves them. He loves Jesus so much that he's willing to risk even their lives to tell them about it. That's what he's getting at here. The question is simple. Who is it that you love most? If it's Jesus, listen, if it's Jesus, it's going to lead you to a cross. If you answer that question and say, I love Jesus more than anything, it will lead you to a cross and the end of you. I read it a moment ago. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Didn't hold on to their, didn't love their lives so much that in fact they were willing to die. They were willing to die. My favorite verse in the Bible, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. David Wiley died on a cross 2,000 years ago. David Wiley died on a cross 2,000 years ago. When we die, because we are in him, our flesh has been crucified with him. David Wiley is dead. But Jesus said the Father will also esteem us. He's not going to esteem me because of how great I am. He's going to esteem me because David is dead and now, preferably, I look like Jesus. So he's still esteeming Jesus in me. I love the way Galatians 6.14, Paul said, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are dead to each other. Jesus said, If anybody serves me, the Father will honor him. If your desire is to serve Jesus, the Father will always honor that. That's easy. If your desire is to serve Jesus, the Father will always, always, always honor that. Um, Not everybody feels this way. Not everybody reacts this way. And when the teaching gets tough, people start turning their heads and squirming. Look at chapter 12 of John, verse 37. We'll finish up here really quickly. He says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. All these people, all these disciples, they come to see Jesus. Even those who hated him have come out to see him. All of them would be coming to a cross. The question just is now, who's on that cross? For you, who's on that cross? Is Jesus still on that cross or are you on that cross? For the religious leaders, they couldn't wait to get Jesus on that cross. For the crowd... They follow him, whatever the religious leader said, so put him on that cross. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's alive, you're on the cross. 
supposed to be. Supposed to be. There's a word of caution here that I'll close with. Can you believe in him? Can you follow him and not end up on a cross? Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So even some of these rulers believed in him. Maybe like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. But for fear of the Pharisees, the rest of the group, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I'll let you decide. Are they believers or aren't they? I bet if we went around the room and took a poll... I bet we'd have all kinds of mixed votes because you're going to put yourself in one of these camps. You're going to say, no, I'm the one that's on the cross. I'm the one that's faithfully following him or no. Yeah, I'm struggling right now. So, you know, I don't talk about him a whole lot. I keep it quiet. So maybe, but I believe, so maybe I'm in this camp. Are these believers or aren't they believers? I'll tell you that if you have to ask that question, what difference does it make? I hate to be ugly, but that's just the truth. You have to ask that question, what difference does it make? Molly and I were in Phoenix. Actually, we just got back at, what, midnight? I mean, we just got back in town about midnight or so, and uh, we've been in Phoenix for the past week looking at houses, and some of the houses that we passed, actually quite a few houses that we passed, have orange trees. They're everywhere. She even said, I want an orange tree in my house. I was like, well, okay. You know, but uh, I imagine in the desert, an orange is probably incredibly sweet in that heat. probably tastes fantastic. You had that tree in your yard and it didn't have any oranges on it and you don't know what an orange tree looks like. And you ask your neighbor, is that an orange tree? And he says, it looks like one, but I'm really not sure. It's never, I've never seen any oranges on it. No reason to believe there'll ever be any oranges on it. What's the point of having that orange tree in our yard? I'm not saying I'm going to dig it up and throw it away. It may very well be an orange tree, but who cares? I'm going to look for another house or I'm going to plant another orange tree. And the dumb irony of all of this last statement is their fear of being open about their faith is that they're going to be put out of the synagogue, the very place where they are coming to study and learn about the one they're claiming now to have faith in. If we're not careful, listen, we're going to let buildings do the same thing to us. I'm just saying. We're going to let a building mean more to us than the person that we claim to follow. We're going to let religious... Men and women dictate what we must do when we know what the Word says. I love, how, I love that you guys are reading the Great Commission. We know what we're supposed to do. You don't have to worry about what you're called to do. It's easy. It's in there, black and white. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? You start by climbing on a cross and letting Him do that. If you get on it, He'll lead you there. Might be in Japan. Might be in the desert. You want to know the truth? Molly and I for years have been, our minds have been set on our Southern Ireland working with Catholics. I don't think there is any opposite, more opposite place than the brown of Phoenix and the green of Southern Ireland. No chance we were going to Phoenix before Thanksgiving. But it's just, it's happened. We have to be careful that we make his words go into all the world and make disciples of all nations our goal and we die. To ourself. Listen, we die to ourselves. That means you don't get the glory. That means God love you, David, but I don't get these big long inter, you know, introductions. We don't get the glory. He does. You, you, 
you're dead. You shouldn't be getting any boasting, nothing, except that the cross makes me dead to the world and the world dead to me. What do you do with this practically? Let me say this. Back up and close with the verse. My Maybe life verse at this point. If less a grain of wheat goes into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You go into the world and die. If you don't, you may very well be a believer. But you will not produce fruit. But if you do, you produce fruit. So that begs the question, what is fruit? I think in the context here, he's really clear. What does every fruit have? Seeds. I got this years ago in Ukraine. I was on a mission trip. And in Ukraine, they have sunflower fields all over the place. They're everywhere. And you, know, you guys know this. In fact, there's one... We saw last summer somewhere around here in Udawa, huge, massive one. Uh, if you get a chance to go out there, you ought to. It's, people take pictures. Beautiful. Anyway, see sunflowers for days. And if you've ever seen a sunflower seed, you, you eat them. You can see them in baseball games, of course, whatever. Just a little bee seed. If you had a sunflower seed, it might very well be a seed capable of producing a sunflower. But if I set it right here, this might be the holiest spot in Chattanooga. But there's still just a seed sitting there. With all the ability in the world in this holy place sitting right here. I can go put it back here with the choir. And that little seed can sit back there with the choir. Sing all day long with all the ability to make a sunflower but still just a seed. But if I put that seed in the soil, what happens to the seed itself? It's gone. I'm not just talking about cracks open. Decays, gone, dead. It does not exist anymore. That seed is gone. There's nothing left of it whatsoever. But a massive plant grows. And here's the point. What's in the face of every sunflower? Huh? Seeds. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seeds. But you don't get there unless you go into the ground and die. And you trust that he will bring life that produces tons and tons and tons of other seeds that are able to go into the earth and die. All right, let me pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you again for the privilege of being here. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of, and I'm not using that term privilege lightly. God, it is a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to open your word, to hold your word, and to stand in this church among these people many of whom i know and love and lord again i thank you for david he didn't ask me to do any of this but i I just feel led to pray for him i love him i really do you know my heart for him and god i pray you bless him for many many years to come him and his family give him wisdom and passion and joy and excitement as he opens your word and is able to do what it is that you've gifted him with and entrusted him uh, to do and i pray for All of the things that are going on here, it's an exciting time in this church. I know that. I see it constantly as I drive by. Lord, I pray for your peace and your joy to guide the decisions that the leaders make here and that each and every individual in this place would be able to daily die 
and say, Jesus, I'm dead. You can have me. I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you say. I stay on the cross. You live through me. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.